Sometimes you might ask, how could this happen? How could people do such evil or support such evil? Sin is always far worse than we can imagine. Since the fall of man, Adam and Eve, they conceive murder immediately takes place in their own family. In the passage that's about to be read, you're going to see again how evil mankind can be, not valuing life at all. It's a graphic text that really happened that points to a brutal and gruesome death of the forerunner of Christ, John the Baptist. In this narrative that Mark brings with long detail, which is not his custom, we see something taking place in the context of a larger call. God's people obedient to proclaim the truth of his kingdom, that Jesus is king. The narrative is found in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, 1 through 32. Mary Jane and Chris Bonfield are going to come and read that text to us. It's long. If you need to stay seated, we understand. But for those who are able, let's stand and let's listen to the word of the Lord. Mark 6, verses 1 through 32. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? <clears throat> and they took offense at him, and Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could not do mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. <clears throat> and he went about the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out, two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not, not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, <clears throat> and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that the people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. So some, some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like the one, of the one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. 
but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Before I pray for the illumination of this text in our hearts and minds, I simply want to say that this really happened. A girl went to her mother and said, what do you want me to ask for? She said, the head of John the Baptist. This young woman adds to that and asking for that head to be put on a platter. The execution took place. The head was placed on the platter and she brought it to the king. Father in heaven, we can't treat these words as if it's simply a story from antiquity that doesn't have bearing upon our own lives and seeing the evil of man and what we are capable of. Lord, show us what we need to see today that we might be transformed by the power of your incredible news that we could see that in you and you alone we have the hope for all eternity and can stand against the things that you've called us to stand against. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray, amen. I wanna read from 2 Timothy 3.12 first. This is what Paul writes to Timothy, and remember Timothy is a young pastor, disciple, being used by God to feed people the word. This is what 2 Timothy records, chapter three, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Let me read it again, it's very short. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, not might be persecuted, not likely will be persecuted, will be persecuted. So today, if you are here or watching and worshiping with us online and you're a Christian seeking to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, which is what Christians do, you will be persecuted. Your grandchildren 
if they're in Christ, will be persecuted. Your children will be persecuted. Your spouse, your friends, your fiancés, your coworkers, all who are in Christ, who desire to live a godly life, will be persecuted. Jesus said as much in his Beatitudes near the end of them. He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Blessed, by the way, means happy. Remember, Jesus is radical, and so is his message, even in response to those who are against us. He continues, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So before we move through this sweeping narrative of Jesus' rejection in his hometown, his instruction to the disciples, even in now they're going to be rejected, and then the John the Baptist beheading account, we know that in Christ Jesus, we who desire to live in him, for him, for his glory, we will be persecuted. And so when we're persecuted, I want you to simply have this framework, and as we move through this pass- these passages, I want you to have this framework. Rejection, Persecution, whatever word you want to use, is a reality for the believer. It just is. From that reality, when we experience it, Jesus in his sermon says, rejoice. Rejoice. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Because any who are pointing to Jesus, the promise of God, to his redemption, calling people to repentance, rejection and persecution is your reality. Rejoice, because there's a reward. And there's one final R I'm gonna get to at the very end, which we see in the text. Persecution, rejection for the name of Christ is real. When we're rejected, we need to rejoice. In rejoicing, we find it possible because of a reward that awaits us in heaven. The more accurately your life represents the person, work, and word of Jesus, the more frequently and intensely you will be rejected. Let me say it again. The more accurately your life represents the person, work, and word of Jesus, the more frequently and intensely you will be rejected. This is true of your friends who are in Christ. It's true of your brothers and sisters who are in Christ. It's true of your children who are growing up in Christ. It's true of your grandchildren. The more accurately we represent, our life represents the person, word, and work of Jesus, the more frequently and intensely we're going to experience this rejection. My high school was a three-year high school. So between ninth grade and 10th grade, there was a major change in my identity. I went from a junior high or middle school as a warrior 
Now he's moving into high school when we would be a patriot. But that's not the identity I'm speaking of. In June of that summer, I came to saving faith in Christ. And I was zealous to tell people about the saving work of God in my life. So much so that I got a nickname. And that nickname stuck for three years. And I hated it. Because it was given to me in a derogatory way. My nickname was Mr. Young Life. And the reason it was Mr. Young Life was because especially on Mondays, the night we would have club, I was inviting everyone to come. And people came. And people came to Christ. There's Mr. Young Life. I wasn't unliked. I wasn't the most popular, not the least popular, but I had a lot of friends and I had a lot of favor. But I hated that nickname because it was done in a derogatory way. There's Mr. Young Life. Holier than thou. Kind of cheesy that he's so into Jesus. But it wasn't terrible. I had other friends that were like me, being discipled through campaigners, which is a Young Life discipleship ministry, and growing up in the church, growing in the church, I should say not growing up, but in the church. But over those three years, that group which started with about 15 boys kind of dwindled down to about three. I never went to parties. I didn't want to be around it. But during my senior year, right around spring break, those nine others that were so regularly a part of our Bible studies for two years, two and a half years, had lost their way. And they were consuming themselves with drunkenness, and it was breaking my heart. And so I went to one of the parties, seeking to be a light. It was at a lake not far from our high school. The first person I saw was somebody that came to Christ the same week I did. He was passed out in the sand. Soon after, another boy that came to Christ the same summer came running up to me. His name was Tim, and he was plastered. And he said, Mark, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Forgive me. Forgive me. And he hugged me, and then he said, take me away. And so I did with two other friends. So we got up to my car, and as I was putting him in the car because he couldn't get in himself, he turned around and nailed me with his fist in the mouth. And in my response, with so much hurt and sadness and anger and pain, I swung back. And I cracked this little bone on the side of his head. This was a Friday. Monday was coming. And on Monday, he came to school with an eye swollen shut that was huge, and I had a fat lip. And he told everyone, Mark punched me. The punch wasn't so good because I was so strong. It's because my class ring was on this finger, which interestingly, at the center of it was a cross. For the next eight weeks until we graduated, I was rejected walking through the halls. Mr. Young Life, nice punch, just like Jesus would do, right? You that are in high school now, or middle school or college, you know what it's like to experience social isolation and loneliness. That eight week period that led up to graduation, which was a very bitter and sour end to my high school years, really was the result of a reputation that was centered on Jesus 
and in a moment an act that did not bring glory to God. God was using all of that in my life to teach me that there is a cost to obeying Christ and a cost to not obeying Christ. And that was the moment I really believe I began to understand what it meant to be identified with Christ. This is a long narrative. And with the time we have together this morning, we're gonna get through enough of it for you to see the power of what's happening here and the privilege of what's present here. But you will need to take this text home and soak in it and see the wonder of what's taking place. Friends, the more our life reflects, represents accurately the person, work, and words of Jesus, the more intensely, the more frequently we're going to experience that persecution and rejection. Therefore, if right now our life doesn't look like it's experiencing much rejection or persecution, it very well is possible that our lives are not really reflecting very radiantly the person, word, and work of Jesus. And it must, for his glory's sake. But all who desire to live a righteous life in Christ will be persecuted because of Jesus. Maybe say it this way, it's simpler. The more your life looks like the life of Christ, the more you are going to be persecuted like Christ. So let's see how it happens. Jesus has been traveling around the Sea of Galilee. He has headquartered his ministry in Capernaum. And now he's decided that he's gonna move southwest about 25 miles with his disciples, his 12 following him, to his hometown. Not where he was born, because he was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up in Nazareth. Look at the passage, turn with me here, verse one. He went away from there and came to his hometown. I do wonder what the conversations were like with Jesus on that 25 mile hike towards Nazareth. Nazareth, by the way, was only about 60 acres and less than 500 people lived there. So you can imagine in the 30 years that Jesus lived around that place, he was known probably by everyone. So now the Sabbath day has come, verse two, and it tells us that Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. And what is the response to his teaching? It's Mark's favorite word, astonished. They were astonished by what they heard because it's Jesus, the living God, teaching. And it's powerful. And they know it's powerful, but they can't see Jesus for who he really is because they know who he really was. And the questions they begin to ask reveal that. Look with me, verse two. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? They had heard what was happening 25 miles away from them. How did he get this wisdom? He's not really a rabbi. He didn't grow up under the teaching of these great rabbis. How could he be this way? They were astonished. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? You might miss this, but that's very derogatory. 
Ordinarily, it would say, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? What they're saying is, he's an illegitimate child, and they're bringing shame to him and to his mother. Are not these his brothers and these his sisters? And then it says at the end of verse three, and they took offense at him. Their astonishment didn't lead to worship of him. Their astonishment led to their offense. The word here is where we get the word scandal. They saw Jesus as scandalous. He was scandalizing them as someone from that 60-acre village. Interesting. They mentioned he's a carpenter. Carpenters were not educated. Carpenters from that area would go to other places. Not far from there, just a few miles, Herod Antipas, the one that we're going to read about in just a minute with John the Baptist, was building a palace. When Herod the Great, the one who slaughtered all of those infants, seeking to slaughter Jesus himself, when he died, his four sons, of which Herod Antipas is one of them, was a tetrarch over a particular area. It's possible that Jesus, as a carpenter, went with his father to help build that palace. We don't know for sure, but it's possible for sure. Interesting also is that the word scandal also speaks of a stone that the builders reject. Whenever they're looking for a stone, particularly the cornerstone, if it's not pure, if it's not perfect, it's considered scandalous. Reminds us of what's said about Jesus in Psalm 118, 22. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus, we're told through Mark, he himself was then astonished and marveling at their unbelief. And so he leaves. He leaves his hometown, and soon after he speaks to the disciples. And as he speaks to the disciples, who are the apostles, and there's a difference, the apostles are the sent ones with his ultimate authority, representing Jesus in his power and his authority with his message, his person, his work, his word. And he tells them, take very little with you, really nothing at all. And it's not just to test their dependence on God, it's also an optic. We don't want people to see you coming thinking you're on vacation. Stay in one place so people won't think this is a social visit where you're moving around one to another house. You have an urgent message, and the urgent message is the good news that the kingdom has come and that I am the king. And the message is a message of repentance, turn. And then he tells them, the reality is they're going to be rejected and persecuted. They will hear him teach again. Rejoice in that. There is a reward for you that's coming. And then he tells them what to do when rejected. Dust off your feet. Now here's what's interesting. The gospel writer Mark, who we believe is recording what Peter told him to say, moves swiftly through his gospel. He's very descriptive but he's fast. He does not give a lot of details in long narratives. 
Why then so much time given to the story of John the Baptist, one of the lengthiest parts of Mark's gospel? Well, remember, when Mark was sent to write this gospel, he's writing to a people that are going to read it in close proximity to where he is. And he is in Rome. And there is an emperor. And speaking of the sanctity of life, this emperor Nero is murdering Christians, putting them on stakes, posting them up, lighting them on fire as lanterns for his gardens. It's very possible that Mark had in mind the reality of the evil world in which he was living and writing into. And when Jesus speaks about the reality of rejection that he himself experienced in his hometown, that the disciples would experience in their own reality as they went and proclaimed the message of the kingdom and the calling of repentance, that when he came to the story of John the Baptist, he's showing how evil man can be, and he is showing what likely could happen to them, clearly foreshadowing what's gonna happen to Jesus on the cross. So in our final few minutes, let's look at this horrific story. And as I just survey it, remember that people do in whatever moment they're in, whatever makes sense to them. So when Herod Antipas heard John the Baptist preaching, he had some conflicting emotions. The word tells us he actually liked listening to him but he certainly took offense. John's message wasn't just a a vague nuance of repentance. There were moments when John would specifically call out an individual sin and say, this is wrong, and that's what he had done to King Herod. King Herod had taken his brother's wife as his own, which was immoral and illegal. She was also his niece, which implies there's an incestuous reality to this too. Why would Herod do that? Because in that moment, as he thought about his life and what he desired, that's what made most sense to him. And while he had some admiration and fear of John the Baptist, his wife Herodias despised him, held a grudge against him, and she too would do what made sense to her in her own mind. And so in a moment... As we know, John the Baptist is in prison. Herod Antipas is creating a celebration of his birthday. And how he plans to celebrate his birthday is plans that are born out of a very dark and depraved mind. The guests are mentioned. It's the leading people in the city. The leading people in the city. And the party that they're going to have is going to be a drunken, sensuous festival. And when this girl comes in to dance, it's a sensuous dance. Don't miss that. And it creates and fulfills pleasure in a very dark and evil setting. And Herod responds, because this is what makes sense to him, that I will give you half of all my kingdom. And he's just, he's just using a phrase. It doesn't ultimately mean that. But it does mean I'll give you something great. 
what should I ask for? She goes and asks her mother, and her mother says what makes sense to her, the evil against life, the sanctity of life. Ask for the head of John the Baptist. And then she does. Now Herod is going to make a decision based on what makes sense to him. If I don't give her what she asked for, I'm gonna lose face in front of all these people. So here's my decision. Based on fear of man, I'm either gonna lose face or John the Baptist is going to lose his head. And he decides that he will not lose face. And in the gory details, that head is brought in to that place of feasting. Mankind is evil. John the Baptist's disciples come, they take the body away. Persecution for those who desire to live a righteous life in Christ is real. When we experience it, Jesus' word says rejoice. There's a reward waiting you in heaven. He was teaching his 12 disciples that reality and his word which would continue to this day. We're reading and feeding on the same thing. The more our life reflects and represents accurately the person, the work and the word of Jesus, we can believe the more frequently and intensely the rejection and the persecution is going to come. In that, Jesus says, rejoice, for great is your reward in heaven. One last R. It's very easy to miss this because of how our Bibles have these chapter headings and breaks within each narrative. Verse 29, I'm sorry, let me go to verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus after he had sent them out, and they told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest. Rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat, and they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. The next miracle they'll experience is the feeding of 5,000. Friends, you can't do this in your own strength. I couldn't walk into that high school that Monday morning, and even worse, that Tuesday, day after day, in my own strength. That suffering for a 17-year-old was very real. It's not the last time I suffered, nor will it be. But the lesson is the same from the words of Paul and the words of Jesus. Rejoice. There is a reward. But between now and then, we must take care to rest so that we can hear our Lord and live in his strength. One day, we will rest for eternity. Until that day, 
with all the power that the Holy Spirit gives us, we must seek to live a righteous life in Christ for the sake of his name. The more you seek to depend on God to do that, the greater your life is going to accurately project radiantly the person, Jesus, the work of Jesus, and the words of Jesus. And the more accurately that is represented, the more you and your children and your friends who are in Christ, your pastors are going to experience frequently and intensely this persecution, not just in this city, not just in this country, but all over the world. Jesus said so. Father in heaven, apart from you, we can do nothing. In you, all things are possible. Lord, as we close in singing a very sweet, powerful, victorious anthem about our affection to you, press these truths in its lived body detail deep into our hearts and let us rejoice even today. We pray in your holy name, Christ. Amen.